I went back in time and I preached the gospel that I hold dear or that I'm aligning myself with, if I preached that to someone who was enslaved, would they find it to be good news? Yeah. And if it said nothing about <laughs> what they were experiencing in the here and now, how is that right. good news to them? <laughs> That's right. And so that I think for as a white man has been really helpful to me. Welcome to season three of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, hello to all of our Shades of Hope podcast listeners. We are indeed blessed today to just to be alive, just to be able to experience the goodness of our God and to enjoy all of his provision. And so I'm elated, as always, to be with my friend and my brother in ministry, Pastor Jeff. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you again. And as always, the way that you characterize our sacred conversations to be able to dive deep into the things that are important to God and his people and really Jesus's mission in the world, the work that we are doing and the people that we get to talk to. Absolutely. Who are doing some of that work. It's just like you always say, sacred space. It is. And we're in a sacred time. You know, the late great Congressman John Lewis said that voting is a sacred right. Yep. And we're in this season where we're getting ready to go to the polls and, you know, in a few days, I'm sure. And I think it's important that we as the Church of Jesus Christ have, you know, the right standing as it relates to how we make sure that all of God's people are represented. And so I'm excited about our guests on today. I've been reading some of his stuff you've been sending to me and I'm getting to know this young man, but why don't you introduce our guests on the Shades of Hope podcast on this day? Yeah, I'm really excited as well. This is actually take number two. We had some audio difficulties at yeah. the last one, so we're really excited that Andrew Whitehead was able to come back and he is the associate professor of sociology and he's the director of the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture at IUPUI here in our hometown. Yes. He's also the co-author with Samuel Perry of the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, which actually won the 2021 Distinguished Book Award from the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. And we just found out he's in the final editing of a new book that's titled American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. I'm very excited about having Andrew on the podcast today to have a very timely conversation. Andrew, welcome to the Shades of Hope podcast. Well, I'm really glad to be here. It's good to see you all again. Welcome, man. Yeah, thank you for taking another shot at this. Of course. Yeah, you know, the old saying is, if you want someone to come back, you leave a shoe. <laughs> and <laughs> So we left a shoe because we needed some more time with this young man. And so we're so glad he's here. Well, Andrew, before we get started, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to engage in this sort of work and particularly research around Christian nationalism? 
Yeah, I would be happy to. Yeah, you know, as I look back over the probably a decade now amount of research that I've done as a social scientist on Christian nationalism, Mm -hmm. I see that, you know, the research and my personal journey are somewhat intertwined. And so you really can't separate the two. So I grew up in Northern Indiana, a very religious community. And then in middle school and high school was very active in the church and in the youth group. And it was a place of safety and in many ways kind of healing for me with some, you know, difficulties in my home life. And so I felt just very very accepted. And I really love being a part of that. But, you know, in Indiana and these conservative religious communities, you know, there's kind of this understanding and really it was unspoken that we are a Christian nation, right? The U.S. is good and whatever we do and work towards is for the ultimate good and is on God's side. And so it wasn't anything that was like explicitly taught per se, but just caught, right? It's just how mm-hmm. we see the world. And it's kind That's of right. the, you know, the water that we're swimming in. We don't really notice it. But there were little moments where I found these cracks, or really they were presented to me, and started to kind of question this unspoken and unchallenged assumption. And so a number of different books. And so through my journey, actually, once I was in college and then through graduate school, my own personal faith journey, so still as a person of faith, you know, really starting to question this idea of the U.S. being a Christian nation and how does the Christian faith interact with our citizenship in different nations, especially the United States, taking its history and all of those things. But then in graduate school, so I studied religion in the U.S., and so we're constantly looking for, well, how can we explain maybe how people vote or how they view family life or how they view you know, racial injustice, how they view gender and sex and, and all these different things that influence our daily lives. And, you know, I and my co-author, Sam Perry, something that we began working on really quickly was, you know, the degree to which people believe the U.S. should or is a Christian nation, should be or is a Christian nation, was very powerful. So above and beyond how often they went to church or how often they prayed, that belief really explained a lot. And so, you know, those two parts of my life, my own personal journey, but then also my professional journey and wanting to understand better how Americans see their social worlds and interact with it, this was really powerful. And so that really culminated over the last couple of years in this book and continuing to work in this area. Wow. Like you said, the water that we swim in, I grew up in a very similar, not only geography, but also theological tradition. And I would agree that my experience was very similar to what you just described And as I became an adult, the place where I started to intersect with this began with my children. Our son went to a Christian preschool, and one day he came home and he said to me, Dad, I'm a Christian, which as a pastor, you're hoping for, right? You're looking for that kind of seed, but he's four. (laughs) And while we are a Christian home, you know, I didn't think there was a lot of explicit conversion language that was happening quite yet. And so I just wanted to inquire a little bit more. And I said, well, tell me more. Like, how do you know that you're a Christian? And he said, because I'm an American. Mm. And it just stopped my heart fell because he went to school every day. And in the morning he would stand and he would say the pledge of allegiance to the flag. And then he would turn and he would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. And it just showed me how powerful our symbols and our rituals are at forming us in a particular way. And sometimes that's really good. And sometimes it's also potentially very dangerous. And so that's where the light bulb went on. And I didn't have any of the language that you had or the data, but I knew that something wasn't quite right. Mm -hmm. When you describe Christian nationalism in your book, you describe it as a cultural framework. Mm. 
Could you just give us a little bit of an expanded definition that you work from when you talk about Christian nationalism? It's all the rage right now. Everywhere I turn, people are talking about it. What's your succinct way of explaining it? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, the first thing with cultural frameworks, the way to think about that is you can imagine those as as almost a sort of scaffolding around Mm -hmm. which human interaction and societies form. So cultural frameworks of different types tell us who we are, what we should value, how we came to be here, where we should go, how we should get there. You know, they contain narratives and traditions and values, all these things. And most often we don't notice them. They just are. And the extent to which they just are and taken for granted. That's when they're most powerful. So, you know, working from that, when we say that Christian nationalism is a cultural framework, it is something that idealizes and advocates for a fusion of a very particular conservative and ethnocentric expression of Christianity with American civic life. So one thing that Jamar Tisby, and so for those that I'm sure they've heard of him, he had a best-selling mm-hmm. uh, book like last year, but mm-hmm. if they haven't, go buy his work. Yep. The way that he explains it that I appreciate so much is that In the U.S., there are different expressions of Christianity, and we need to widen our aperture, as he says, of Christianity. It isn't just white conservative Christianity. There's the black church and and other racial and ethnic expressions. And even within white Christianity, there are other expressions. So Christian nationalism is really focused on privileging this one particular type. Mm -hmm. And it contains a number of different elements. So one is a strong sense of moral traditionalism based on creating and sustaining social hierarchy. So who's at the top and who's in the middle and who's at the bottom? And a lot of times these revolve around gender and sexuality. So men, heterosexual men especially, at the top. And then from there, the society's ordered. The next element is comfort with authoritarian social control. So mm-hmm. it sees the world as a chaotic and dangerous place, which in many ways it can be and is. But what we need in this view it would say, is strong leaders to take control and either through the threat of violence or with violence, install order and maintain order in the social world. And so the final element then is a desire for strict boundaries around who gets to be a citizen. So national identity, social belonging, Mm -hmm. and these fall along ethno-racial lines. So that's why a lot of times you'll see me and Sam Perry and Phil Gorski and others working in this area talk about white Christian nationalism, because it really is one where white, natural-born citizens are held up as the ideal with everyone else coming after. And so those elements are all a part of this cultural framework and the narratives and values that are associated with that particular expression of Christianity really undergird much of what they see is how society should be, and then also how to get there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from my perspective as an African-American Christian, a lot of things go through my head as I participate in this conversation and read some of your writings. It's been very difficult for pastors to relate to a young Black man who have always said that Christianity is a white man's religion. Hmm. And this white Christian nationalism feeds right into that misnomer. Hmm. It feeds into that which keeps a lot of young African-Americans from wanting to even engage in church or in any kind of, you know, participation in what they call the traditional church. They know God. They want to be spiritual. Mm -hmm. But when they look at what's going on in this Christian white nationalism or white Christian nationalism, whichever way you go with it, Mm -hmm. it's such a negative effect 
on the Church of Jesus Christ. It is so ungodly in the manifestations in which we are seeing it. And that's why I'm so excited about reading your next book, hmm. where you call it a form of idolatry. That's right. Yep. You're a researcher. You run a data archive. So that's where you kind of start. And your book reflects that, I think, very well. It's a data-driven, research-driven hmm. book. I think there are people who respond to stories about something. And then there are people just that respond to the data behind it. As you guys were approaching the writing of the book, who was your audience and what were you hoping to accomplish with the way that you went about writing the book? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for us, we were at a moment as both of us were, you know, untenured assistant professors kind of on the tenure track. So we were Mm -hmm. in the midst of, you know, proving to our colleagues that we were, you know, worthy to keep around in our positions. And so we were ready to work hard. So that means speaking to the academic community, but we were also very, you know, motivated to speak to a much broader audience. So we saw this as a really important concept to understand if people wanted to make sense of their social worlds and of what was happening in the U.S. and a lot of the polarization and political fighting that, you know, continues to go on and maybe it was even worse than in the mid-2000s. And so, you know, we were really aiming for folks who like to read about religion in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and who might, you know, click on these editorials or, or whatever in different national magazines or newspapers to try and educate themselves. And so we wanted to be able to speak to them, both Christians and not, because it really didn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you embrace Christian nationalism or you reject it. Where you fall on that spectrum tells us something about you. And so we knew that this could resonate with a broad audience. And so that's who we were really aiming for. And so, yeah, a lot of the tables, data tables are all in the back. They're in the appendix, so you don't have to see them if you don't want. (laughs) But those are for our colleagues in the social sciences, right? So if they wanted to go and check to see, did we control for X, Y, or Z? Or what type of models did we run? You know, all these things that, you know, 98% of the world and our readers don't care about, they could find them. But for pastors like you all, for lay people in the pews, for people that have left Christianity and are trying to make sense of how they grew up and their family life and those family members who are still attending churches that maybe embrace this, we just kept the bar charts in there to help illustrate how powerful this can be as people embrace Christian nationalism. And so through our interviews, trying to bring in story and narrative and quotes, but then also through national surveys to be able to back up that it isn't just anecdotal. It's not just who we talk to, our friends or whoever, right? but that we're being able to gather data of a large sample and then extrapolate that scientifically to the American public. And so Our audience were people that really wanted to make sense of religion and American civic life right now. And so that was the goal. Yeah. And you did it well. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, really. Uh, From a theological perspective, I understand from the academic and research perspective, there are people who want to see the data. But from a theological perspective, when you think about white Christian nationalism, it's, it's just steeped in hypocrisy. And in many ways... It's not biblical because it almost tends to have a angry, negative kind of a approach to life where the Bible talks so much about love. Hmm. Love has to be the key to us walk amongst one another and that love for one another, love for our brothers who are even different than we are. I don't see how white Christian nationalism 
measures up to the biblical teachings of loving one another. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. Two books that are really helpful to me and influential. One was Dr. Obrey Hendricks. He had a book come out like a year ago, two years ago, Christians Against Christianity. Wow. And he highlights wow. much of what you're saying, Pastor Moore, where he's a biblical scholar. So he is he is going to the text and he is yeah. highlighting how, in his words, the religious right, Christian right, but he also brings up Christian nationalism, how it has twisted the commands of Jesus in many ways left it behind. Another helpful book for me was Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. His book, Reconstructing Religion, also has another one, Revolution of Values, but he talks in terms wow. of slaveholder religion. Yeah. I mean, he actually just had a column— I guess by the time this comes out, it'll be a month or two ago, mm-hmm. where he talks about the Southern Baptist Convention and how slaveholder religion, you know, preached making quotes in the air the gospel to those they were enslaving, but yeah. <laughs> continued to enslave them. And so this is the legacy of, you know, this white Christian nationalism where overly spiritualizing the gospel that, well, it, it's a hope for the future, but we aren't going to worry about inequality here and now. And that, I think, is, and in my next book, try to make this explicit. I think that's the way that it betrays the gospel, that when Jesus came, his first message in Luke 4 to everybody is he's fulfilling the words of Isaiah, that he comes to bring hope to the oppressed and to the poor. And and that's a fundamental realigning of power and societal structure to benefit all. And so if we're going to take that seriously, I think— for the most part, you know, white Christianity has failed to do that in the U.S., and that's what we need to work at now. Yeah. Well, even in your book, this was sort of surprising, but based on what we were just saying, not surprising, that you point out that people who lean toward that Christian nationalist agenda often do not have religion or morality as their primary concern. And so you think about a term Christian nationalism, and then you think, actually— they're not mostly concerned about the morality of the love your neighbor as yourself sort of outcome as their primary concern. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, when they speak of and think about morality, you know, that's been kind of culturally conscribed for them by really, I kind of liken what we see now to starting in the 70s. And of course, the roots go back centuries, but with the rise of the Christian right, where the moral, again, quote-unquote, issues were abortion, homosexuality, and divorce. And those were the things. But when we talk about you know, what happened a decade prior and a little further back with the civil rights movement, that was not to be mentioned, right? So when we're talking about racial injustice or anything like that, those were not moral issues that the Christian right was concerned with or is concerned with even to this day. And so, yeah, when they talk about morality, it's very specific words and terms and and topics that they're going to look at, and it isn't broadened at all. And so I think that really points to the fact that a lot of this is about ensuring that a certain group maintains privileged access to the levers of power. And that has historically been and continues to be, you know, white Christians, natural born citizens. So when we look at the makeup of, you know, Congress or even state legislatures, it's overwhelmingly Christian and white and male dominated as well. And so these are, you know, aspects of it. And so it allows in many ways them to ignore some explicit teachings of the gospel and of the Christian scriptures but to ensure that, well, when we focus on just these issues, that will basically be a wedge issue that will ensure that people continue to vote as we would like them to. And to be really honest, you know, as a young man, my first, let's see, the first time I could vote was in 2000 election mm-hmm. and then 2004. Mm-hmm. 
And in both of those, I voted for George W. Bush because as a Christian, I felt like, well, how in the world could I ever vote for someone else if they weren't explicitly, again, quote unquote, pro-life, which I saw as anti-abortion, like they had to be against abortion. So that was literally the only thing. And so that is not just my experience, right? We know this is something that has affected a lot. And so that is where we can ignore certain issues because these are the only ones that we should care about is the story being told. And it's really powerful politically. Yeah. I mean, you even share that in Christian nationalism, they spout that any kind of conversations or pushback as it relates to racial justice or issues facing ethnic minorities in our country, you say that they are considered by them as a mere distractions bent on causing and sowing division. Mm. And so when you are marginalized and then you speak out hoping that things could change to equal the playing ground and then they turn it on you and try to create an environment where when you talk about Black Lives Matter, then that's like creating division. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they play that game with this whole cultural movement of Christian nationalism. Yeah, I think in many ways those will be labeled, well, that's just politics, right? Right. And the things we're focused on are morality and values, Christian values and morality. And so, yeah, that has been incredibly powerful rhetoric that has been used. And it isn't new. I mean, that's the playbook that has been used for decades. Black Lives Matter just happens to be it now, or, you know, even more recently, you know, critical race theory or CRT, just using those to, again, create wedges where we don't have to listen to what marginalized groups are saying here and now, because we're focused on saving souls, again, quote unquote, you know, the kingdom of heaven, we need to just focus on preaching the word. And, so one quick, you know, anecdote, Jerry Falwell, so one of the architects of the Christian right in the 70s, right. you know, in responding to the civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others who were leading that movement, you know, in the 60s, Jerry Falwell preached the message saying, you know, preachers and pastors should be focused on saving souls, not on, mm-hmm. you know, this business of what these other pastors are doing. And again, he's referring to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But then not a decade later, <laughs> he's saying, hey, pastors, we need to get people baptized and we need to get them registered to vote yep, that's right. because we need to be taking this country back. And so you can see the switch and the change there that happens. The hypocrisy. Yeah, that's right. Flat out hypocrisy is how I see it and how many see it. And then for this movement to embrace, in my opinion, to all of our listeners, this is Pastor Clarence Moore's opinion, <laughs> to embrace one of the most immoral individuals to lead a movement or at least to benefit from him leading is another form of hypocrisy. I mean, a person that exhibits very little characteristics of what we would call a godly man. Mm -hmm. And yet 70 million with 80% of that 70 million being white Christians voted for him. There's something wrong with this picture. Yeah. Well, you know, just really quickly, Pastor Moore, to that point, just to bring in the statistics, because I, I just can't help myself. Come on. The Public Religion Research Institute, they were able to gather data, you know, over a decade ago, and they asked a question about how important it was that political leaders essentially have strong character. And they found white Christians, 
70% to 30% said you cannot serve in public office if you don't have strong character. You need to have that. Right. And thinking wow. back to the Clinton years, right? That's right. And I was just going to yeah. say that. I'm glad you had the data. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and Al Mohler too said, you know, if I right. voted in 2016, he said, if I voted for Trump, I'd have to go apologize to Bill Clinton. Yep. But then when Trump came on the scene and they found that this will be the person that again fights for us. And again, it's about power. It's not right. about whether the yes. leader reflects our Christian morals, values, beliefs, or is a practicing Christian, but will he defend us? That us is key. Yep. When PRI put another survey in the field, it was a complete mirror image. Now, 30% said, yeah, you have to have strong moral character to be leading in, in these offices. 70% said it's not a big deal. So they completely flip-flopped. Yep. And so that, I think, really st- throws into stark contrast what is happening. And and again, in 2020, Al Mohler said, well, yeah, we should vote for Trump. So he flip-flopped yeah. too. So the anecdotal and in the survey evidence, we see that taking place. Well, and they make deals with themselves, right? They they negotiate away the responsibility of their ethics by saying things like, we just want him to be our president. We don't need him to be our pastor. Right. Right. So all of a sudden you start to hear these little sayings that are laced with some sort of truth, but not applied consistently over time. Right, right, right. Yeah, because we don't. We don't need we don't need That's somebody right. to, to be our yeah, to be the chief officer of the US, right? The president is supposed to administrate. We don't need yeah. a Christian or a pastor to do that. We just need somebody who will serve the will of the people. But I like how you put it, Jeff, where there's kind of this kernel of truth in there, but yet it gets twisted in a way to benefit. Well, and it seems like the movement now is very anti democratic. And I think it's because of the growing diversity in the country. Speak a little bit to that, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Again, I can't help myself but point to some good resources. Phil Gorski and Sam Perry's recent book, The Flag and the Cross, is kind of a deep dive into Christian nationalism and the threat to democracy. We have some of that work, too, in taking America back for God, especially at the end. We we think through some of those implications. But really, when we talk about Christian nationalism, we survey the American public, Really, we find that this cultural framework is suspicious of the opportunity that democracy creates for power sharing among disparate groups with competing mm-hmm. visions for the United States. So there's an internal consistency to the logic. So if God has a plan for the United States and Americans who embrace Christian nationalism are the ones that understand this plan, and the only way for the U.S. to stay in God's good graces is to execute that plan and ensure that the United States aligns with God's commands, then those who know what those are, believe that they know what God commands, have to do everything in their power to ensure that the country stays on that track and that it comes to pass. So for Americans who embrace Christian nationalism really strongly, setting aside democracy in order to save the nation, in quotes, from itself is a more than worthy sacrifice. So if the God of the universe commanded it, then why in the world would we let anything stand in our way? And so this is just the power of legitimating some of these narratives and political views in the will of the sacred. It becomes a non-starter, right? Like They're never going to try to collaborate or compromise, God forbid, with anybody else if God is commanded, or again, they're saying that God is commanded, it has to be this way. Wow. And so when it comes down to democracy or that vision of the U.S., Americans who embrace Christian nationalism or the politicians we see especially today who embrace Christian nationalism are going to choose power every time. And politics is about power, but it's about yeah. respecting right. the other side and saying, well, according to these rules, we're both going to play by these rules. 
And if the other side wins, then we have to basically say, okay, you won. And then we try to win next time or we collaborate and compromise. It's messy. It takes a while. It's never perfect. But that was, you know, at least the underlying desire of a democracy in the U.S. And so Christian nationalism in that sense is fundamentally opposed to that, sees no way to bear that out. And so we find among Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, they're more likely to deny voter suppression is a problem, more likely to say it's too easy to vote, more likely to say that, you know, people who have committed certain crimes shouldn't even be allowed to vote. And so they see voting, and which is kind of the fundamental bedrock of a functioning democracy in this sense, as a privilege, not a right. Yeah. And privileges only extend to certain people. And again, that's where we see that boundary drawing taking place and really begins to keep out certain people from having a say. And that's, I think, where the great threat to democracy comes in. Yeah. And you continue to populate the lie that if I don't win, then there was shenanigans going on. Exactly. Exactly. That is so, it's like the Indianapolis Colts going up against the Kansas City Chiefs before the whistle was blown. I knew the Colts were going to get into this <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. somehow. And they declare that, well, if we lose, the referees cheated. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do you deal with people like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's either my way or no way. And that is so, I mean, I was taught in kindergarten, you know, you raised your hand if you wanted to say something, you get in line and, and the person ahead of you, you know, and we have stoplights because, you know, we have all kinds of order, but then these folk, want to create a whole different paradigm Mm -hmm. that they may hold on to power. And in my opinion, it is so, so ungodly. There's another side to this too, though. I think there's a desire to retain power because of the fear of what happens when we're not. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the other side of this? Yeah, that's a really great question. So one of the chapters in my upcoming book, American Idolatry, I look at as one of the key idols of Christian nationalism, I say, is fear. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is that over and over, a part of the political playbook of the Christian right was was trading in fear. Again, Jeff, as you really well stated, it was, well, what could happen if we aren't in power, right? What could happen? And then Basically, if you go back and I kind of highlight this, James Dobson, I use him as an example. I mean, almost every single election for the past 20 years has been the most important election in our lifetimes because because of all that will – I mean, the downfall of Western civilization. And I'm not even exaggerating. Like, he uses those terms. So – that fear is so powerful as a motivator. And so, you know, it's a long history in American civic life with Jeremy ads, right? So mm-hmm. we look back at a nostalgic and, and perfect past. We highlight a step two, just how we've fallen away from that. And then step three, what we need to do to return. And so that fear is so powerful. And so... As an African-American male, what are you white guys talking about fear? I mean, you sure is not... What is this fear based on? Well, you know, I think in many ways, a lot of times, cultural frameworks like Christian nationalism become really powerful in moments of change and what some may sense as cultural upheaval. And so they want to latch onto something that's telling us who we are and what we're all about. And so as demographics do change in the U.S., I think that is one area where it's creating this sense of at least, I think it gets blown into fear, but at least, you know, this uneasiness that 
can be essentially from, so it really gets complicated here, but two, there are a lot of forces at work, the media, right? And so the, mm-hmm. the places where people go to get their news, a lot of white Christians watch, to be really blunt, Fox News. And mm-hmm. fear keeps people tuning in and it gets ad buys. Russell Moore in Christianity Today had an article a year or two ago where he was highlighting this fear of immigrants and refugees and how unchristian that is. But it's because we're watching news shows and they need to get ad buys where they're going to trade in outright lies about refugees and immigrants because it will keep people tuning in. And so a political scientist, Paul Jupe, had a really great way of thinking about this. And he used some data to back this up where he talked about the inverted golden rule. So many white Christians or those that embrace Christian nationalism, they essentially fear what they might receive from others based on how they might treat others, right? So the way we treated them, we're afraid they might treat us like that. And so that leads to all sorts of, I guess in this term, to take off the social scientist hat and put on you know, my hat of faith to un-Christian, un-Christ-like behaviors where we're going to deny folks the access to democracy or try to work towards flourishing for all people. Because again, we are afraid they might treat us like maybe we've treated them in the past. And so that fear is really powerful. And I think it leads us down dangerous paths. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you start looking at the formation of our country and from the very beginning, Hmm. I used to wonder why President Barack Obama would always call it an experiment. Hmm. Democracy, American democracy. And I understand it much better now that I think through social media and through the heightened fear of privileged people, mm-hmm. we're beginning to see this thing come to the forefront. But America's never really been a Christian nation. That's right. uh, I think the fathers were more deist. And from the very beginning, it was built on the subjugation of a group of people. And for about 300 or so years, free labor and and all that took place. And then you got people today wanting to not talk about the truth of what happened and and what is. It's, it's so disheartening for mm. a lot of us in the African-American experience yeah. Yeah. of what we're facing today. And it's definitely hard to encourage young people as they're looking at the church mm. yeah. <laughs> when they see Christians acting the way that they are acting. And I'm glad that you are doing research and that you're writing that men like you are helping us see ourselves in the mirror. Yeah. And fear as a discipleship conversation, mm-hmm. I mean, fear is an indication of the lack of something that God wants to give us because the scriptures tell us that perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. So if that fear is rising up in us as followers of Jesus, we need to pay attention to where it's coming from because it's not coming from God. It's not coming from God. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a basic discipleship process. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so well put. And, you know, one line that a lot of my fellow sociologists will use in class with our students is equality feels like discrimination when you're used to privilege. And so for Uh, white American Christians, the fact that the U.S. has never obviously been perfect and really has only been an actual democracy for like 40 years, 50 mm -hmm. years. I mean, it wasn't until the 60s, right, that it was widespread and with uh, racial and ethnic minorities, especially women, too. And so it's not that old. And it's only really existed for especially white men for it's the majority of its lifetime. And so, you know, Pastor Moore, I'm so appreciative of you and others 
from communities that have been marginalized. So for me, coming from a majority white community, I never heard those stories. I never yeah. heard pastors talk about racial injustice. And it wasn't yeah. only until I could start listening to those stories and then trying to empathize. Like, well, that doesn't seem Christian or that doesn't seem American. And so, yeah, for the work that you're doing or uh, Dante Stewart as a book, Shouting in the Fire, you know, mm-hmm. as a young black man coming to terms with his Christian faith and in a country that doesn't and didn't love him and how right. to live in the midst of that uh, really powerful narrative. And so I think, too, the statistics are helpful, but also the narrative. We need new stories. We need okay. new ways to think about and understand what America can and should be and what Christians can and should do. So for me, it's trying to listen as much as I can to voices from those that have been marginalized because I, I feel like Jesus is on the margins. That's right. Empire is Absolutely. not at the center of God's story. And so I want to be right. found there and I do it imperfectly, but that's the hope, right? That's what I want to do. Yeah. That's awesome. That's right. He is the God of the marginalized. And in the words of the late, great Howard Thurman, you know, he talked about that. Mm. Him coming to the marginalized. And you mentioned Isaiah. Mm. prophecy that Jesus quoted in the Gospels. Think about one thing that has gone on. You mentioned the 60s been about 40 years of what America has tried to fix or to move this needle when it comes to justice. Mm. The fact that there is a Voting Rights Act Mm. in place, is that meant for white men? Why does the country have to vote so many decades later as well not black people can vote? or non-white people can vote, and maybe even women may be in that category too. That is such a fallacy. I was asked that by my young people. What, what do you mean? Why, why is there a Voter Rights Act? Is it, what do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, it really doesn't exist any longer as it was passed in the 60s. I mean, the Supreme Court essentially undercut it you know, in the last decade. And we've seen yeah. the repercussions of it in 2016 and, and onwards. And so there really isn't a Voters' Rights Act anymore. But I think it continues to be so necessary because we see that in politics, there's a lot that can be done to ensure that the vote is limited to only the people that we want to see. So gerrymandering obviously is a huge issue. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, yeah, even like in North Carolina, the lines that were drawn, the judge that threw out those districts said that the Republican Party basically created those lines with precision to yeah. ensure that the outcomes were ensured. And so, mm-hmm. you know, things like that are, are difficult, I think, for me to understand as a Christian. If, if we're supposed to want to allow everybody to have a say— you know, because we want a common flourishing of those around us, why we would want to limit who has access to it and and to work with them, it doesn't seem like that's being a good neighbor. And so that's where, yeah, those questions arise, and we're still fighting that battle, for sure, I think, as a country. And we have an opinion coming from the Supreme Court around that issue that could totally destroy Mm. any semblance of voting rights act. Mm-hmm. In the next term, I understand, where states can basically decide, the state legislatures can decide who goes into office versus the people's force. Mm. These are all dangerous signs of tyranny and authoritarianism. I heard someone say in Germany that they came for them and we were okay, but then they came for us. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen if we're not careful. We think that the only way to control our fate and our power is to put a certain person in office 
But when that person begins to come at them, then we lose right. rights also. Andrew, it's been great to have you. I'm going to ask an unfair question as we close. <laughs> so you feel free to answer as much or as little of this as you want to, but we are most interested in helping to equip the church. Mm. Lots of pastors listen to this, church members listen to this. And one of the biggest challenges right now, honestly, for pastors in congregations and I would even say for congregants in congregations is to try to separate the gospel from Christian nationalism. As a person of faith, what advice would you give? What wisdom do you have to offer as we think about practically Mm -hmm. pastoring people who are affected by this? Yeah, that's such a great question. And and one that I'm, you know, continuing to think through and think about. And so, I guess a couple of quick resources, because this is work that I think we have to do on our own and in groups, especially and in our communities, is continue to learn what Christian nationalism is and to think about how can we be Christian in the public space, because it is important. So I would never say that Christians can and shouldn't vote or be a part of what's happening around this. We definitely should. I don't see how you can be a Christian and not be involved in the world around you. But I think Christian nationalism pushes us towards a really negative and in many cases, I think a horrible expression of Christianity. And so, and that again is as a person of faith saying that. And so, um, Caitlin Sheese has a book, The Liturgy of Politics, and that was really helpful to me. And so, I would use that. There's also a group through the Baptist Joint Committee called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And so if you Google that, you'll find it. It's a petition signed by, I think it's upwards of 30,000 people now, but Christians in the U.S. that because of their Christian faith are saying we need to oppose Christian nationalism. And it lays out reasons why and what we hold to be true. And, And those are really powerful. And I think those could be ways to start discussions to move forward. But I think for me, then, the big part is understanding the gospel and and what that means. And if it is truly good news, then the gospel that we preach— so this is a little kind of, I guess, way that I think about it, is if I went back in time and I preached the gospel that I hold dear or that I'm aligning myself with, if I preached that to someone who was enslaved, Hmm. would they find it to be good news? And if it said nothing about what they were experiencing in the here and now, how is that right. good news to them? That's right. And so that I think for as a white man has been really helpful to me to be like, okay, it is about spirituality and this promise and this gift that God gives us, but it is also desperately about what is happening around us. And God is concerned about the flourishing of human beings in the here and now and Christians being a part of that work. Um, And so that's how I like to think about it. And so I think, yeah, spending time thinking through that and these resources like our book and others that hopefully help to distinguish between other expressions of Christianity that are focused in in working that direction from those that I think have, have... yeah, we've sold a birthright for a mess of porridge and it's, mm. you know, it's not paying off. I don't think that people <laughs> like non-Christians in the U.S., those that have left the faith or never in it, they do not know us as people that are loving and invested in, in exactly. flourishing by and large. It doesn't mean that there aren't Christians that are doing that work. There are. There are many, many Christians yeah. doing that work. But by and large, we are not known by that. And so, yeah, I think that's where I hope to continue to learn from others and reading others, then hopefully being part of that work too going forward. And again, this challenge for Christians to be 
true followers of Christ is nothing new. Frederick Douglass, in a lot of his writing, which speaking to Christians, saying, you know, you're not portraying what the Bible is basically asking us to portray. And he also said, what is the 4th of July to a slave? Yeah, that's right. You know, so powerful. Speaking of all the hypocritical aspects of American life, and then Dr. King comes along and writes this letter from the Birmingham jail to mm. Southern white pastors and churches saying, man, we're, we're, we're hurting here. Where are you guys? Where, mm-hmm. Why are you so silent? Mm. And then here we are today, still screaming and hollering. You mentioned earlier about shouting in the fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fire is still blazing. Yeah. And we're hoping that we can get more individuals who really want to walk and exemplify the life of Christ to begin to cry with us mm. and begin to extinguish this fire or light a different fire mm. of hope for tomorrow. Mm. Well, Andrew, thank you again for taking the time for the work that you do and for the way that you do the work. Mm. I just also really appreciate the Amen. posture that you take and the gravity that you understand that's happening and how you handle that. So, We want to just bless you Mm. as you continue to step into this space. We know that when we push back against the powers and principalities that are Mm. at work trying to divide and destroy, that that also brings with it some cost. And so we will also be praying for you as you do your work. Mm. Thank you. But we're looking forward to the next book as well. This is, again, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, authored by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. And we're looking forward to the next one. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate the conversation and thanks for the work you're both doing. And yeah, I hope we can continue the conversation. Yeah. We have to. We have to. Wonderful. I believe there's a brighter days ahead, but it's going to take young men like you and Pastor Jeff <laughs> that are going to help us turn the tables. God is still in control. Yes. Mm. Amen. God bless you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. That's shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children. Mm -hmm.